0: please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 2. So we are back in our series through the book of Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 2. We have been blessed the last two Lord's Days being in the Psalms. First, Psalm 54, Pastor Dennis. And then last week, Psalm 55 with Brother Tyler, who was here with us. We were thankful to be able to hear from both of them, expounding upon God's glorious word. And now we return once again to 2 Samuel. So we're looking at this whole chapter. So with your Bibles open, get ready. We've got several verses that we're going to read aloud. And there's a lot going on in this chapter. So this, just to kind of, again, place us within the context, this is... After David hears of the death of Saul, he has a lament. He leads the people in a lament. And now we see the rest of his life beginning or continuing to unfold before us. Um, Follow along as I read from God's word this morning. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahiniam of Jezreel, and Abigail the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household. And they lived in the towns of Hebron, and the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But... Abner the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth the son of Saul and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul, went out from Mahinim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zer- Zeruah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down the one on the one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, 12 from Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David and each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helketh Hazurum, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very, was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeruah, were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. And Asahel was as swift a af- foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, is it you, Asahel? And he answered, it is I. Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back, and he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amah, which lies before Gaia on on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would have not given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Ereba. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahiniam. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner. And when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, a lot in this chapter, as we're working through this particular text, I want us to note on on the outset, as we have... It's been months, but we were in 1 Samuel. We, we took a, a long break, a year or so, and worked through the letter to the Hebrews. But as we're working through now 2 Samuel, we'll continue to, to, to dip back into 1 Samuel to remember where we've been to help us understand where we are. As we look at the journey of David's life leading to him becoming king over Israel— not just king over the tribe of Judah, what we discover is that real life that is unfolding before us does not happen in a straight line. I think it's good for us to see in David's life the reality of of our own lives, that there are many twists and turns, many ups, many downs, times where we, we have expectations of things happening sooner than they actually happen or different, different than they actually happen. And in David's life, we hear that he is in Hebron for seven and a half years. I think that's important for us to just make note and think about how long you may have been in a certain place, in a season of life where you were expecting something else to come. He was, according to Samuel's anointing upon him, to be the king of, Of Israel and for seven and a half years after many years on the run from King Saul which he never would have desired upon his life now seven and a half years in in Hebron over the tribe of of Judah much adversity is also a part of this narrative real life does not unfold in a straight line. Now, you may ask, why do we spend so much time working through like an old ancient text like 2 Samuel chapter 2? And it is not just to sharpen our understanding of Israelite history by no means. We see in the establishing of the reign of King David Signs pointing forward. And so as we read God's story unfolding from Genesis to Revelation, we see even in 2 Samuel 2, in what's happening in David's life, being signs, so to speak, pointing towards what is to come, what we now understand has been fulfilled in King Jesus. And so all the places that are mentioned are important, All the events that transpire are not for us to just kind of gloss over and read them as just another story in history, but this is God's story unfolding before us. And if you are in Christ and part of God's redemptive story, this is actually part of our story. And so we look at how the author of 2 Samuel being inspired by the Spirit of God pins this particular chapter for us. And as I mentioned, the places are significant, they're helpful. I was trying to figure out how do you break this down into points. What we see, there's kind of two ways that you can look at this. One, you see that his kingdom is established, David's, albeit not exactly what he may have expected right away or others, but His kingdom is established under divine guidance. We'll see that. We see that there's an invitation given to a group of people to to be a part of this. And then lastly, we see opposition. It does not take long before opposition rears its head against God's kingdom. Another way that you could kind of look at this chapter is is by just kind of honing in, focusing on locations that are mentioned. First, Hebron. Why is that important? Then we have Mahiniam. That's where uh, the son of Saul is raised up by Abner. And then lastly, where uh, Asahel is buried, buried in Bethlehem. So you could look at it that way. We're going to hit on both uh, of those layouts as we work through the text, but remember that locations are important also remember we have this kingdom being established under divine guidance there's an invitation and then there's opposition so first i want us to just look briefly at the way that this begins because it's actually really important you will notice that david doesn't move until he first inquires of god he inquires He listens and he obeys. Now, I love how the Lord orchestrates things, particularly here in this local church. So this morning in adult Sunday school, we didn't plan this out, but where Tim was in Luke chapter 8, Jesus is identifying who his family really is. So his mom and his brothers come. Jesus is teaching his disciples they're like, hey, go tell Jesus that we're here. We want to talk to him. We want to see him. And Jesus says, you don't understand. Those who listen to my word and obey them, they are my family. And what we see laid out in this chapter is we see one kingdom being established under God's guidance. And David is inquiring upon the Lord. He's, he's praying to him, asking for the Lord's guidance. He's listening and he's obeying in stark contrast to Abner and how he takes one of Saul's sons and makes him king. This contrast is us is for us to see the, the the two kings in the land or the two kingdoms on display before us. And as we work through this passage, it's helpful to remember how Jesus defines who is part of his family those who listen and those who obey. And in David's life, we hear him inquire, listen, and obey. Shall I, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And the Lord directed him, and where does he go? He goes where the Lord Leads. What I also want us to note in this kingdom being established under divine guidance, this was God's chosen king. We saw this clearly in 1 Samuel. Yet, David's posture is so so insightful and so encouraging in how he's responding to all this. David did not take matters into his own hands and this is not new in his life and ministry he had other occasions to take matters into his own hands one example 1 Samuel chapter 26 we've looked at this in the past but you may have forgotten so David's in the wilderness of Ziph there's a reason why he's there It's because Saul has been after him, and Saul takes 3,000 men, chosen men, to seek after David in the wilderness. And Saul encamps at Hakala. Okay, the story unfolds. David is made aware of where Saul is, King Saul, with all of his men. And sure enough, he sends spies, validates that's where he's at. And David comes to the place where Saul has encamped. David sees Saul, he sees Abner, and he sees all the men around uh, around them sleeping in the the encampment. And then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Joab's brother, Abishai, who we see in this chapter that we're looking at this morning, he says, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. And the reason why I want to highlight this particular story is as they go down to the army by night, Saul sleeping within the encampment, and his spear is stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. And Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, please let me... Pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. I want you to hear how David responds. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will, will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. This this was the heartbeat of David's life, not taking matters into his own hands, although he knew what God had anointed him to become, he knew what was to be the, the, the end of where God was leading him, but he was trusting in God the whole way there. You may know the direction you need to head, but there can be foolishness and folly along the way if you lose sight of your daily dependence upon God as you move, as you interact. This this is helpful for us to remember that it is a moment-by-moment dependence upon the Lord, and David is showing that, not taking matters into his own hands, even though he knows the end of what's to come, what's been promised, but wholly depending upon the Lord every step of the way. This is not what we hear from David. Do you know who I am? And do you know what I have done? I am the one who slayed Goliath. I am the one that songs were written of me that Saul may have killed his thousands, but I have killed ten thousands. No, that is not how he responds. It is not, you owe this to me, this is what I deserve. And a good question is why? Why, why does David respond this way? It is, I would submit to you, holy because of God's work upon this sinner's life. And this example is again one that points forward, is a shadow, if you like, pointing towards Christ and his kingship, whose pathway to exaltation was through the the path of obedience. There was an an acquiring, a listening, and obeying pathway that David lays out as an example, and Jesus does the same when he comes. Where shall I go up? And the Lord responds, Hebron. Again, location matters. So I want us to spend just a moment here. What about this place, Hebron? Well, in Genesis chapter 13, after Abraham or Abram's been with Lot and they've accumulated so much that they they can no longer with all their livestock stay in the same place. And so Abraham trusting God says, Lot, pick whichever direction you want to go and I'll go the other way. So after that's happened, Lot picks his choice, what is beautiful unto his sight. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, Your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Verse 18. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. At Hebron, a town rich in covenant memories, many other things transpire in this location. It is where the three divine guests approach Abraham and Sarah and tell Sarah that she will become pregnant and have child. It's the place where Sarah and Abraham, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah were all buried. All in this place, Hebron. Now, I want to remind us of how this all connects to God's plan of redemption. The way that Matthew begins his gospel, very first book, uh, very first verse, listen, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David's kingship is directly related to the story of God's call of Abraham, which is related to the coming of King Jesus Jesus which is related to the establishment of the kingdom that will never be destroyed. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and, his, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So why are we in 2 Samuel, this chapter in the Old Testament that seems to not have a whole lot of re- uh, relevance to our life here and now? I would submit to you that it has so much relevance to our life to now, our life now in the kingdom of God. But I also want to, to, to have you note the unimpressive start. In verse four, we see that the men come to David, the men of Judah, and there they anoint David king over the house of Judah. An unimpressive start. While on the outside, it may look that way. I just want us to also note this. Here, for the very first time, God's chosen king visibly rules on earth. It may be as small as a mustard seed, but at this moment, in 2 Samuel 2, for the very first time, God's chosen king visibly rules on earth. Again, it may not look like much. David may even be pondering, why am I in this part of Israel, this maybe obscure backcountry part, Judah, for such a long period of time? You can fast forward and people continue to ask those same type of questions, even about the Lord Jesus. who. Is this Jesus, a carpenter? John chapter 1, for example, when the, the calling of the disciples, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This is Nathanael's response. Said, he said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see the kingdom of God has for a moment, one commentator wrote, tucked itself away in the hills of Judah. The kingdom of God in this sense is like a mustard seed. Now, as we think about David's kingship starting in Hebron, do not allow the unpromising form of the kingdom to blind you to the real presence of the kingdom. I think this is really applicable to where we are today. You may feel like the kingdom of God is still in the Hebron stage. Kind of tucked away, not not real visible like it should be if people only knew who the king is. But we know who is ruling and reigning in power and glory. And for those who are in the kingdom, there can be contentment and peace even when it seems obscure to a dying and broken world. This is why we pray that God would give us eyes to see the kingdom of God. You, you may not have the physical ability to, to ascertain all that God is up to, but spiritually, by faith, even as we're gathered in this room now, we get glimpses of his glory glimpses of his rule and reign, when when a husband and wife are functioning in a God-ordained way in their marriage, when children are obeying their parents as they should, when things are happening in the workplace where there is honor due to those who are over you and compassion given towards those who are under you, when there is justice, when any of this begins to manifest itself, We who have eyes to see the kingdom of God understand that this kingdom may seem like a mustard seed, but it will and is growing, expanding to the ends of the earth. We know who is ruling and reigning, even when it seems that the circumstances of life look like the kingdom is is no longer valid or filled with power and glory. Yet those who are in Christ who are daily reminded of who is reigning, even now can be rest assured, are not blind to the real presence of the kingdom. It is no little thing when God's chosen king begins to reign. David's Hebron phase did call for a patient faith that waited on the promises of God And that showed the value of biblical guidance. So, David's action in 2 Samuel 2 also shows the difference between a faithful servant who wants to serve God and an unholy ambition of God's or or David's rivals who sought to serve themselves. Before we get to Abner and what he does with Saul's son, there is this interesting part of the passage that's sandwiched in, in between David becoming king of Judah and Abner, the commander of Saul's army, seeking to make a man-made kingdom. And sandwiched in between, we've got the men of Jabesh-Gilead. And it's an interesting invitation that, that David, now king of Judah, sends to them. Now, in order to kind of understand how pro-Saul, the men of Jabesh-Gilead, were, you kind of have to, again, go back and understand what King Saul did for them. So this takes us all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 11. And it was during this time in 1 Samuel chapter 11 that Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, very powerful, evil Ammonite. This is what they said after they knew that they were in a bad spot. Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. Now, this is part of the the people of God recognizing that this evil man, Nahash, has whooped them. And they are now positioning themselves, if you will just let us be your servants. Please, we will do whatever you say. Make a treaty with us. This is how evil this man was. Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. Horrible situation. As the story unfolds, word gets back to Saul. And in that moment, God uses Saul to deliver the men of Jabesh Gilead destroying Nahash the Ammonite. So Jabesh Gilead has always been pro-Saul down to a man. Now, this is what David sends to these men. When he hears what they did for Saul, he, he writes or he sends messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord. Because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead. And the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Now, if they are pro-Saul, surely... As the years have unfolded, they knew exactly Saul's aggression towards David, desire to eliminate David. And so in a sense, they were kind of by de facto enemies of David. If they were so pro-Saul, they were probably those who looked towards David in in not not a good light. One commentator says, David's message to those who had every reason to regard him as their enemy was all about the grace of God. And I was thinking about this. In a sense, this, this invitation again points us to the Lord Jesus. So imagine with me, the men of Jabesh Gilead received this message. They then have you know their, their, their family meals, their evening meals maybe they they gathered collectively and they begin talking about this enemy of Saul, this David who is now king of Judah and what are they to do with this message? They they remembered all that Saul has done for them. David is not, okay, David's maybe king over Judah, but we know what Abner, Abner is about and what he's doing with Saul's son. We now have, have a, a, a big decision to make here. And in the midst of even that conversation, they, they were enemies of David in a sense. And I think this, this, this kind of helps. This is where I want to make the parallel, the, the jump to Jesus. When we look at Romans chapter 5, we see grace extended when we were still enemies of God. The men of Jabesh Gilead are are sitting here receiving this this invitation from a man who was sought down and hunted by King Saul, who they are for. And so in a sense, they are placed at enemy or at odds with David, and yet he is extending grace upon grace. Hear Romans five for a moment and think about your standing before God outside of Christ. For while we were still weak, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now what's interesting is we actually don't know from our passage how they respond. And so this morning, there may be some in this room who need to hear the invitation. Jesus, who is the perfect spotless lamb, did something to make you right with a holy God. He laid down his life. When you were at enmity with God, a child of wrath, where you wanted to be the one sitting on the throne, nothing to do with God, no, no desire to follow him or obey his commands, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. So the men of Jabesh Gilead received this grace, this offer of invitation to come and to follow and to submit to the kingship of David. This morning, Christ is calling you to come repent of your sins submit to him as king lord over your life savior the one who forgives your sins gives the gift of eternal life and rules and reigns over every sphere of your life will you come we don't know the response of the men of jabesh gilead but today can be the day of salvation. Praise God that his mercies are new every morning and great is his faithfulness and you are sitting in this place to hear the good news of the gospel that though you deserve hell and damnation because of your sin, in Christ there is freedom, there is forgiveness, there is eternal life found in him and him alone. He is the one who comes and says, I am the way. The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I love that even in 2 Samuel 2, in even this invitation to to enemies, there is an opportunity to be in the kingdom of God. If you're wondering, do I do something? Do I earn it? Do I have to be good enough or right enough? Everything about the gospel is scandalous. You could never be good enough. You could never be right enough. We look to Christ because he was good enough and right enough in your place. He is your substitute, meaning he did everything that you could not do, and he died and absorbed everything that you deserved because of your sin. All glory and praise to Christ, our King. Now we have looked at the establishment of David's kingdom starting small like a mustard seed in the land of Judah. We have seen the invitation and I do not think it's possible to look at all the opposition this morning. But the end of chapter two that we've read and into chapter three, there are a lot of connecting points. So Lord willing, we will look at that next Lord's day and see How once David's installed as king over Judah, immediately there is opposition to the kingdom, God's chosen king. As we're thinking about the remainder of this chapter and looking forward, I want you to know that what is made clear in this chapter in closing, I really am going to try to close it out. There are only two options and there's not neutrality here as an option there is an option to be a part of the king of kings and lord of lords, the kingdom of God, or there is to be a part of the world or the opposition as we see manifested in this story with Abner the commander pulling in one of Saul's son and placing him on the throne, a man-made throne that seeks to make much of man instead of much of God. There isn't this middle place So in a sense, if you want to place yourself as the men of Jabesh-Gilead receiving an invitation, you have to respond. There is a a command to repent. And you can't just stay in this neutral place of saying, well, I kind of like some parts of this king of David in in the land of Judah. But I also really like a lot of what Saul's family is about over here. Please know that there is not a neutrality option. And this invades all of our life. Every area of our life is touched. Do we submit to the Lordship of Christ? The only other option is the kingdom of darkness. There isn't this in between. I know we live in, in the, the Bible belt where it is nominal Christianity, everyone knows the right things to say out of their mouth, but are your, is your heart actually transformed by the gospel? Is your allegiance to Christ from head to toe, he is your Lord and savior or not? The lukewarm will be spit out, Christ says. There is not an option for neutrality. So may this be the day where you, by God's grace, see your need of a savior And whether you acknowledge it or not, Christ is king. We read in our opening of this service from Philippians 2, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Christ is Lord. That is if those are bowing because they are worshiping him as their God or those who are forced to bow in submission to the king of kings, even in their rebellion. May we have eyes to see the kingdom of God this morning. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. So thankful to be able to look at the life of David and see how he sets in these particular verses such a good example of how we are to hear your word, cry out for your direction, listen and obey. He also, we are thankful, points to the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus And in his obedience, he followed and was raised up to his exaltation as the one seated at the right hand of the Father. Father, we praise you for all that is in this chapter and pray, Lord, that uh, you, by the power of the Spirit, would impress truth upon our hearts and our minds as your people to see the invitation that, that David sent out as king of Judah, to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, and see how that points to the invitation proclaimed to all of us this day. Father, we rejoice in the gospel, the hope that sinners like us can find salvation in the blood of the Lamb. We rejoice in our Savior, and we plead for those who are far from you now that there would be repentance and belief upon Christ, and we pray all for his glory and our good. In Jesus' name.